Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. We, Hermia, like two artificial gods, have with our needles created both one flower, both on one sampler, sitting on one cushion, both warbling of one song, both in one key. As if our hands, our sides, voices and minds had been in corporate. So we grew together, like to a double cherry, seeming parted, but yet an union in partition. Two lovely berries moulded on one stem, so with two seeming bodies, but one heart. William Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Friendship has been an absolutely central relationship in virtually every culture we know of. Um, There's a wonderful book by an anthropologist named Robert Brain called Friends and Lovers, which is a kind of cross-cultural study of of friendship. It came out about 20 years ago. And he studies friendship patterns in all kinds of different societies. And um, there's lots of different shadings, uh, even, for example, between Australia, where you are, and America, lots of different um, shadings of friendship. But some version of friendship seems to have existed in most societies that we're aware of. Um, And I think it's been considered by all kinds of major thinkers to be one of the central issues in uh, the happiness of a human life. And that's what we're interested in today. Friendship might sound like a lame subject for a podcast designed to undeceive us on serious subjects. In fact, I said as much when director Mark proposed the topic five or six months ago. But then I lost my best mate. He and I had been warbling of one song, both in one key, for more than 40 years, from February 1980, when we had our first brawl on the football field, to June 2021, when he passed away peacefully in my lounge room. 
I hadn't consciously reflected much on friendship until Ben died and Mark pushed his favourite subject onto the schedule. But I now think of friendship like breathing. It can animate everything, even if you don't stop to think about it. And when you lose your breath, you know about it. A recent study of 10,000 people who've experienced the death of a close friend found, and I quote, significant adverse physical and psychological well-being, poorer mental health and social functioning occurring up to four years following bereavement. We'll put a link in the show notes. The corollary, of course, is that friendship is good for you. The Mayo Clinic in the US says that having significant friendships increases our sense of belonging, boosts happiness, improves confidence, and even health. But there's also some evidence that the number of our friendships might be in decline. The 2021 American Perspective Survey found that 12% of Americans report having no close friends. 12%. That compares to just 3% in 1990. Back in 1990, 33%, a full third of people, said they could count 10 or more close friends in their life. Now, just 13% reckon they have 10 close friends. So what's going on with friendship? And what can we learn from history and literature about the significance of this subject? And why did I never realize before just how much the Bible has to say about friendship? I'm John Dixon, and I need this Undeception. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, Still Time to Care, What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality, by Greg Johnson. Every episode at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And if you want to help us get the truth out, we've got a giveaway competition to promote the show. Just head to Apple Podcasts, write a review of Undeceptions, positive or negative, mostly positive, send us a screenshot of what you wrote, and we have a free hardcover copy of my new Bullies and Saints for the five best written reviews. Producer Kaylee will pick the winners. Extra points for the Oxford comma. All the details are in the show notes for this episode. Enough marketing, back to friendship. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist 
to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course, or even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. So can you make it less vague for me? Can you can you give us a definition of friendship? Or or is it just one of those things we intuitively know and should move on? You know, Dr. Johnson was asked that question when he was writing one of his famous essays about friendship. And he said, it's like light. It's very difficult to define, but we all know what it is. That's Ronald Sharp, one of the foremost experts on the literary history of friendship. He's Professor Emeritus of English at Vassar College in the state of New York. Before that, he was Professor of English at Kenyon College. His books focus on poetry, romanticism, John Keats, and friendship. I guess I would say uh, it's simply a, uh, a close personal relationship between uh, non-family members between people who have not um, taken any kind of legal action to certify their relationship. Now, that's, a, that's the crudest definition of friendship, but um, you know, I think it's been, it's been an, an, uh, a relationship that almost everybody who's ever written about it has regarded as absolutely fundamental to human flourishing. And humans have been writing about it for thousands of years. Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh is probably one of the earliest. Um, the Chinese have been particularly articulate about friendship. Chinese poetry, uh, poets like Du Fu and Li Po and Po Chuai uh, are some of the greatest uh, poets of friendship. Um, of course, in the ancient Greeks, you've got Plato and Aristotle writing at great length about friendship. Aristotle has a whole long essay about it. Um, which has probably been the single most influential account of friendship, aside from Cicero's, which came a few years later. Um, but um, yeah, we see it in, in almost all myths um, and folklore as well. But uh, it, it appears in the philosophical literature in Greece and Rome very early. Yes, uh, there, there's um, an essay um, I know of by um, Plutarch, How to Tell a Flatterer from a Friend. Just as spurious and mock gold only imitates the brightness and glitter of real gold, so the flatterer seems to imitate the pleasantness and agreeableness of the real friend, and to exhibit himself ever merry and bright, contradicting and opposing nothing. We must not, however, on that account suspect all who praise as simple flatterers, for friendship requires praise as much as censure on the proper occasion. Indeed, peevishness and querulousness are altogether alien to friendship and social life. But when goodwill bestows praise ungrudgingly and readily upon good actions, people endure also easily and without pain admonition and plain speaking, believing and continuing to love the person who took such pleasure in praising, as if now 
he only blamed out of necessity. Moralia, Plutarch, 90 AD. Plutarch was a Greek philosopher trained in Athens in the first century. He's one of the most humane and inquisitive writers from the ancient world, probably most famous for his Parallel Lives, where he offers these mini biographies of two significant figures to draw out comparisons and contrasts in their character or achievements. Plutarch was perpetually fascinated by what makes a good life. And he wrote more than 50 essays or pamphlets on ethics, religion, politics, literature, and just life in general. What's interesting, though, is that most of what we know about friendship from ancient Rome concerns the usefulness of friends. Friends are trustworthy connections in society. There isn't a lot, at least in the Roman context, on what you might call the grace of friendship, friendship as a gift. It seems to me that, that the fundamental quality that defines a friendship is that it's a, it's a gift relationship. It's a relationship in which um, utility is not the issue. Uh, getting something from somebody is not the issue. We are used, particularly in 20th century Western societies, to thinking of human relationships in terms of consumer relationships, consuming something, purchasing something. I'll invest in this relationship so that I can get A, B, or C. What what do I want out of this relationship, as we say? Um, That whole model, that whole uh, sense of um, what a human relationship is, seems to me, from the point of view of friendship, to completely misunderstand what friendship entails. Um, you, uh, You don't treat each other as ends, as means to an end. It's not as though you're investing in a friendship in order to gain certain valuable qualities for yourself uh, and have the investment pay off. Um, We have a lot of uh, silliness going on in in, uh, modern therapeutic psychology, which talks about friends as um, sort of disaster protection, you know, where you it, it's argued that uh, one should always have friends because unpleasant things happen in life and you need people to support you in difficult times. And so it's almost as though like having a savings account, you know, instead of investing, putting money in your bank for, for dark times, if you lose your job, you should have some relationships with people that you can count on when you really need them. And it seems to me that that whole way of looking at human relations is completely counter to what friendship is all about. Professor Sharp is one of the editors of the Norton Book of Friendship. It's an anthology of great literature on friendship, which brings together hundreds of works from many cultures spaced across the millennia. There's poetry, letters, plays, essays, stories, and diaries. We've got Shakespeare, Mozart, Keats, Emily Dickinson, and much more. We'll bring you some of the best before we're done with this episode. The book even includes a section on how friends say goodbye. And this gets very cool. The greatest poetry about friendship is written by the Chinese poets, Li Po and Du Fu and Po Chuai. Very, very simple poems, uh, often poems about saying farewell. I've been very interested in the whole subject of saying goodbye to friends. And that whole notion of saying goodbye to a friend in the ultimate sense of being with them when they're dying, 
is something that that really uh, has a powerful influence on the whole of friendship. It's so precious that you know it it can be lost in the blink of an eye. Um, and the Chinese poets were absolutely marvelous at finding a way to uh, embody in a poem that feeling of the precious nature of a relationship and what it was like to say goodbye to a friend after you were leaving after a weekend together or whatever it was. Uh, not sure one friend was setting off on a long journey back to his country. This is from, this is by a poet named Du Fu. And it's called To Wai Pa, a retired scholar. And it's translated by an American poet named Kenneth Rexroth. The lives of many men are shorter than the years since we have seen each other. Aldebaran and Antares, these are galaxies in the sky. Aldebaran and Antares move as we have. And now, what night is this? We sit here together in the candlelight. How much longer will our prime last? Our temples are already gray. I visit my old friends. Half of them have become ghosts. Fear and sorrow choke me and burn my bowels. I never dreamed I would come this way after 20 years, a wayfarer to your parlor. When we parted years ago, you were unmarried. Now you have a row of boys and girls who smile and ask me about my travels. How have I reached this time and place? Before I can come to the end of an endless tale, the children have brought me the wine. We go out in the night and cut young onions in the rainy darkness. We eat them with hot, steaming yellow millet. You say, it is sad meeting each other again. We drink 10 toasts rapidly from the rhinoceros horn cups. 10 cups and still we are not drunk. We still love each other as we did when we were schoolboys. Tomorrow morning, mountain peaks will come between us and with them, the endless, oblivious business of the world. I love it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Friendship is one of the great gifts of life, but it's fragile. And precisely because it is so fragile, precisely because it doesn't last forever. I would say that of love, too, rather than just friendship. You know, the fact that your partner is mortal <laughs> and that you're both going to die and that it could happen tomorrow or, or in 10 years is very much tied up with the actual emotion of the friendship. I loved my friend. He went away from me. There's nothing more to say. The poem ends soft as it began. I loved my friend. Langston Hughes, The Poem. No collection of great literature on friendship can ignore the Bible, or so I've learnt. It contains loads of stories of exceptional friendship. There's David and Jonathan, 
Ruth and Naomi, Jesus and John, the beloved disciple, and the wisdom literature of the Bible, that's um, Job, Proverbs, and so on, contains tons of aphorisms to help the wise recognize and maintain true friendship. Here's Job chapter 6. Anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the worship of the Almighty. Proverbs 17. A friend loves at all times, and kinsfolk are born for a time of adversity. Proverbs 27. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Oh man, that's deep. Proverbs 18. Some friends play at friendship, but a true friend sticks closer than one's nearest kin. Proverbs is probably the place where friendship is talked about the most. And I've seen really helpful studies where people have kind of gone through and collected up all the proverbs about friendship and then built a sort of understanding and a framework out of that. And it says very, I think it says things that we would be surprised to hear today about the significance and and nature of friendship. That's my friend, Sam Albury. Sam's an Englishman and an Anglican minister who now lives and works in the United States as a pastor, author, and much sought-after speaker. He's written and spoken extensively about the importance of friendship. The fact that that God in the Bible uses friendship as one of the categories for describing his relationship with his people, again, shows us that it's not a trivial thing, it's not an empty thing. Uh, He means something by that. Jesus said to them, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus, the Gospel of John, AD 90. That reference in John 15 is telling because Jesus is actually making a distinction between the kind of relationship he's had with his disciples and where things have now progressed to. Um, And he, you know, when he... I forget where it is he says this, but when he talks about greater love hath no man for his friend than this, that he lay down his life for him. It's interesting that when he's talking about the greatest expression of of love, Jesus reaches for the category of friendship. He doesn't, in in that instance, reach for the category of, of spouse or marriage, as we might expect him to. So I think it's it's one of those things where I don't want to overplay it and say, hey, this is you know, the most important thing in the whole Bible. But it, it's there more than we tend to realize. And with a significance, I think we we overlook to our detriment. There's a, there's a very dominant cultural narrative that basically says that, um, that marriage and sexual or romantic relationships, that is the real way to find intimacy. We've, we've kind of put all of our eggs in that particular basket. And I think as, in the, the church generally, I think we've we've kind of accommodated that that narrative and we've just decided, well, Christian marriage is the basket. And so we've not left much space for other kinds of interaction and relationship. We've we've made the focus Christian marriage, I think, in a way that's become unhealthy. 
a because we've we've downgraded other forms of, of relationship that actually all of us need and b by doing so i think we've put pressures on marriage that they're not easily going to to be able to bear and as a consequence we've made we've made churches lonelier for people who are not married um, whether that's people who haven't yet got married or people who are divorced or widowed um, or people like me who've never married um, sometimes it feels like it's it's very hard to fit into a church family and we use that terminology if you're not married and don't have your own nuclear family the modern church isn't alone in elevating some kinds of relationships and downgrading friendship. It's perhaps a generational trend. I remember when I was when I was a small boy, my my great grandfather was still alive, and he came to my school to talk about what it was like being in the trenches in the First World War. And this is aging me considerably, um, but I remember him talking about. The, the kind of depth of friendships that that they had serving together, living together, fighting together um, in the trenches. And he would speak of that, and I've read other accounts from that period, the kind of language people used then, we would slightly raise an eyebrow at today. Um, but it seemed that they had a, a healthy way of you know, they were having to deal with issues of life and death, so you can't keep things at just a superficial level. And obviously, months on end in a trench and you don't have other family around. So this is all you have to deal with relationally. But it, it struck me that there was a there was a nobility to the friendships then that I think we have lost sight of in our own time. A soldier reflects that his name will never be engraved on plaque or headstone. Now rather thank I God there is no risk of gravers scoring it with florid screed. Let my inscription be this soldier's disc. Wear it, sweet friend, inscribe no date nor deed. But may thy heartbeat kiss it night and day until the name grow blurred and fade away. Lieutenant Wilfred Owen to my friend, 1917. I think earlier generations had a, a slightly higher view of friendship than we tend to have. Um, I think we're very casual about the idea of friendship. We've we've downgraded friendship. Um, earlier cultures would quite happily speak of friendship in fairly rich and deep and intimate categories. Um, and I think we've we've so sexualized the idea of intimacy and relationship that we've kind of left very little space for other forms of of deep connection. And so we've sort of downgraded everything else in the process. The sexualization of intimacy, the sexualization of society in general, might be the enemy of a culture of friendship. More on that after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades. And access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. 
Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash Undeceptions. Thank you. I want to ask you a, a, a tricky question. Um, has the widespread acceptance in recent years of same-sex relationships um, affected the way people in, in you know in popular culture think about friendship? Sure, it's, it's a it's a big issue, and it's and it's been a big issue for a long time. Um, Probably the, the the most interesting treatment of this in literature is The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare's famous play, where Antonio and Bassanio were close friends. And there's some- Hey, we're about to read you a short bit of The Merchant of Venice, but I've got to say I'm a little bit uncomfortable with Shakespeare's comical portrayal of the Jewish moneylender Shylock. We'll put a thing in the show notes where you can read more about that and the question of anti-Semitism in Shakespeare. But hopefully it doesn't detract from Ronald Sharp's really good point. In The Merchant of Venice, the hero Antonio believes he is about to have a pound of his flesh removed by a Jewish moneylender as a penalty for defaulting on a loan that he took out for his friend Bassanio. Antonio says, Commend me to your honourable wife. Tell her the process of Antonio's end. Say how I loved you. Speak me fair in death. And when the tale is told, bid her be the judge whether Bassanio had not once a love. Repent but that you shall lose your friend, and he repents not that he pays your debt. For if the Jew do cut but deep enough, I'll pay it instantly with all my heart. Bassanio replies, Antonio, I am married to a wife, which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all, a sacrifice them all, here to this devil to deliver you. William Shakespeare, 1596. And there's some question about whether there's some homosexual interest, uh, whether the interest goes beyond uh, just feelings to something more physical. Um, Shakespeare deals with this in a brilliant way. But in, in modern times, you know, particularly in the last 50 years, as these issues have moved to the center of our culture, um, it has complicated things a great deal. The church is probably partly to blame here as well. Just as our culture has has made sexual intimacy the kind of all-encompassing, you know, telos of human relationships and, and so on, I think in the church what we've tended to do is to become so hyper-suspicious of inappropriate intimacy that actually we've we've made it harder for people to have healthy intimacy and so and i think we share this some of this with our even with unbelieving 
non-Christian friends around us that actually you see any form of intimacy and you're tempted to think that's probably sexual ultimately. Um, and I think I see that in, in our, our society. I was actually listening to a, an undergraduate student yesterday talking about David and Jonathan in the Old Testament and referencing David's comment about how Jonathan's love meant more to him than that of a woman. Sam's referring to maybe the Bible's most famous friendship between the Prince Jonathan and the then shepherd boy David. When they met for the first time after David famously killed the giant warrior Goliath, the Bible records Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. Their friendship spans more than a decade and many life-death encounters until finally Jonathan is slain alongside his father Saul during a battle with the Philistines. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired. And in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. The second book of Samuel, chapter one. And she said very understandably, very instinctively, I mean, that just sounds very gay to me. And a lot of people within the church would, would share her conviction because we were so used to any kind of intimacy and expression of love being within a, a kind of romantic or sexual context that we've we've squeezed out the ways in which we can actually enjoy those things in a way that is nothing to do with sex and romance at all. So I think we've we've made it harder to actually to have good friends because we're we're reading sexuality into into places where it needn't be a feature. The friendship of David and Jonathan isn't the only one that modern commentators sometimes sexualize. There are two Egyptian nobles from 4,000 years ago who are depicted together on a tomb wall. Niyank Kanum and Kanum Hotep were in fact buried together, and the tomb images show them embracing face to face in a perfect mirror image sequence. Now, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll read that this suggests they are the first same-sex couple ever to be depicted. But both guys also have wives and children in the various scenes. It's unlikely they were lovers. A major recent review of the wall scenes by Macquarie University Egyptologists Linda Evans and Alexandra Woods concludes that they were in fact identical twins, viewed in ancient Egypt as metaphysically one person. Our instinct to eroticize these guys says more about us than ancient Egypt. 
Or there's Richard the Lionheart of Third Crusade fame. Now, some have suggested that he was the lover of King Philip II of France, because records say they occasionally shared a bed. But Professor of Medieval History John Gillingham says that's rubbish. 800 years ago, sharing a bed was an accepted political act. But that doesn't stop the internet providing rich speculation that this was indeed a homosexual relationship. Some have even suggested the same about Jesus. In an article in the UK Guardian, Anglican priest Paul Osterreicher connects the fact that Jesus was unmarried with the mention that John was known as the beloved disciple. And so he concludes, the evidence that Jesus may have been what today we call gay is very strong. This is nuts as a historical statement. It's strong evidence only of the modern tendency to sexualize intimacy. It can't be that Jesus was single, like other Jewish prophetic figures we know about. It can't be that Jesus had a best friend, like so many of us do. It has to be some suppressed evidence of same-sex romance. I think the same is true across the sexes, actually. Jesus' relationship with Mary Magdalene, for example. He kind of just felt profound warmth and respect for Mary. There had to be some romance. The two of them had to be secretly married or whatever. Our culture is dumb. It may be true that previous societies suppressed sex and romance. Personally, I don't think that's true nearly to the extent we imagine, but let me concede it for the sake of the argument. My point is, we have the reverse problem. We romanticize and sexualize everything. And one of the results is that the grace of friendship is demoted and diminished. Here endeth the lesson. There's a peculiar tradition of same-sex friendship in Australia. It's usually called mateship. And Professor Sharp, though an American, has some thoughts on it. You know, the whole Australian tradition of mateship, for example, came out of the founding of the country, first with the penal colonies and then with the settling of the wilderness, where men would go out in groups of two or three, two or four, uh, to settle uh, a very wild place. And they had to work together very closely. Um, There were issues of survival that were at stake. There were violent uh, threats to their lives and to their livelihood by uh, just the question of finding food. And so these people had to work together and they became, as, as we say, mates. They, they were looking out for each other. Um, and then suddenly that morphed into a, uh, an Australian conception of friendship. We learned the creed at Hungerford. We learned the creed at Burke. We learned it in the good times and learned it out of work. We learned it by the harbour side and on the billabong. No matter what a mate may do, a mate can do no wrong. He's like a king in this respect, no matter what they do. And king-like shares in storm and shine the throne of life with you. We learn it when we're in jail and put it in a song. No matter what a mate may do, a mate can do no wrong. They'll say he said a bitter word when he's away or dead. We're loyal to his memory, no matter what he said. And we should never hesitate but to strike out good and strong and jolt the slander on the jaw. A mate can do no wrong. Henry Lawson, Interlude, 1915. It's endearing. I mean, certainly in the UK where I'm from, we have a a sort of equivalent thing. That's back to my mate, Sam Aubrey. We don't 
use the word mate as much for it. But I think our view of friendship would be quite similar. There can be the people that, you know, these are your guys, this is your team. Like you say, you'd, you'd step in front of a bus for them. And you can have that kind of friendship for, for decades, and, and many people do. But you might not necessarily know the real depth of what's going on inside each other's lives. That That's a different kind of thing. And so mateship is it's it's real it's honorable it's it's great i wouldn't necessarily say it's a form of intimacy because if intimacy is being really deeply known and accepted at the same time actually that's quite a rare thing and we can have a lot of friendships even long-term friendships where it's not necessarily on a heart-to-heart level um and where it can even become awkward if if someone is trying to introduce that element and so we we need mateship. That's part of what makes the world go round, and it's a it's a social lubricant. But I think we need more than that, more than just that. There's this famous um, scene in Crocodile Dundee, where uh, Paul Hogan, you know, calls the out outback pub where he's from, um, from New York. And says good day to various people, and and then he he's introduced. We're introduced to a character called Donk, who's his mate, and his mate wants to say hello and send him his love, and he famously say, he gets on the phone and goes, Mick, get stuffed. <laughs> yeah, Ida sends love. Hey. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute, Donk wants to have a word to you. Mick, get stuffed. <laughs> 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 That's all, and then he puts the phone down. And now Australians totally love that. In fact, I must admit, I say to my best mate, uh, "Get stuffed" all the time. Uh, <laughs> when, I, as a substitute for, "I love you." The whole idea of mateship in Australia, I think, got kind of confounded with this utilitarian sense of we have each other's backs. You know, I have a mate. I have somebody I can count on if there's a disaster to save me or protect me or help me get through something, with the very real feelings that did emerge among these people. Um, and then in, as Australian history developed, the whole idea of mateship got very much associated with national identity, with something unique to Australia. Yeah. Um, I don't mean to take this dramatically personal, but uh, four weeks ago, I lost my best mate uh, to, uh, to cancer. And he and his wife lived his last six months in our home, uh, in our, uh, living room over there. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's got me thinking, uh, with his passing, you know, is it possible to, to have new deep friendships like that? I mean, he was my best mate since we were uh, 10 years of age. Yeah. And uh, to, to, to have him no longer here is just quite disorienting. Yeah. And has made me think, well, is that it? Have, I can never have that depth of friendship again. What, what do you think? Is it possible to create new friendships, you know, as a 50 year old? I think it's, it's possible. Uh, it's very hard. The fact that you had a friend from the age of 10 years old, I have a couple of very old friends from the time I was seven years old, uh, who I'm still friends with. Two of them died recently, um, and one of them is still alive. 
And there's something there with all those years and growing up together that can't be replaced. There's growing up together, there is a kind of bond that's formed. They understand parts of you from your early childhood on that nobody else could get later. Um, and and I think that's a that's a, a something to really treasure. And I, I'm sorry for your loss. I can only imagine. I know what it was like to lose my very close friends from childhood. But um, friendship is an amazing uh, discovery, and happens sometimes in the most accidental way. You know, when when you're not looking for it. Um, and I my, my own sense is that uh, it it isn't the kind of thing you look for. Um, I mean, you can you can have an inclination after your friend dies of saying, I really love that relationship and I'd love to have another one like that and try to cultivate things. But um, it, a real friendship, the kind that really matters at that level, um, has to develop in natural way. Without friends, Sam Albury reminds us, we lose something much more precious than simply someone who has our back. Obviously, sociologically we'd lose um you know because unless people are looking after you you practically lose things um but do, but do you think there are more profound things that you lose if you don't have intimates i think so yeah um i i've seen marriages implode because they they were looking just to the spouse to fulfill every relational and emotional need in their lives and i think there's a complexity to us whereby Actually, one other person is not going to be enough, um, and it, it's no slight on on a on a wonderful spouse to say. Actually, I need I need friends alongside my marriage, not in place of it, but um, but alongside it to augment it. Um, some of my most of my closest friends are, are married, and it, it's interesting when I'm arranging getting together with them. It, it might be their wife who actually gives them the real shove out of the door and says, "Actually, you need." you need some time with just you and Sam or you and the guys or something, because again, there's, there's a, we're complex creatures. We're not going to have all of those relational needs met in just one, in one dimension of relationship. Um, and there's, there's, you know, I think the biblical wisdom anticipates this, the, the book of Proverbs says a lot about friendship and suggests that it's actually a key component to living wisely in God's world is to have is to have friends, is to have people who do journey through life with you, who do really know you, who you can share things with and, and have that support. So I think we would actually end up with a a relationally impoverished way of living if we if we didn't have real friendship. One of the criticisms thrown at Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, by the religious elite was that he was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So uh, for them, that was not a good thing. Uh, One wonders if Jesus saw it as a compliment, uh, even though it wasn't intended as as that. But what do you make of that concept, Jesus as the friend of sinners? Yeah, I mean, as a a Christian, I'm dependent on it. Um, If he's not the friend of sinners, I have no hope. But I think more than that, it it tells us a lot about Jesus himself. We know from the gospel accounts that he, you know, he 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 dined with tax collectors not as a sort of one-off, not as a in a kind of token kind of outreach sort of way, but actually it 
they seem very drawn to him. So Jesus seemed to be able to, to eat with people, to genuinely enjoy the company of people without necessarily affirming and agreeing with everything about what they did. And similarly, he could disagree with people without having to reject them. And I think we've we've lost, again, we've lost that kind of nuance in our own dealings with things today. We're so used culturally to thinking, well, friendship means you have to agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, you can't be my friend. If you don't affirm me, you're not my friend kind of thing. Whereas with Jesus, we see him, we see him being a genuine friend to tax collectors, but not, a, not in a way where he's affirming things about them that were clearly immoral. Um, so the friendship of Jesus, he doesn't wait for us to be up at his moral level before he extends friendship. But wonderfully, when he does extend friendship, it does change us. Um, you know, one of the features of a friendship that every parent knows watching their kids is that your friends rub off on you. And that's why parents care about who their children are friends with. And the friendship of Jesus rubs off on his friends. Um, so he doesn't become more like the tax collectors. They end up becoming more like him. Um, so I think there's, again, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture. And, and as you say, it was a term of derision that actually became a term of, of honor, I think. And, I suspect, and I, I speak for myself here, it's it's something I'm not as likely to be accused of as I, as I should be. This brings us back to something I said near the beginning, something that isn't talked about much in the Roman world of Jesus' day, but plenty of other cultures did revel in it, and Jesus embodied it. It's the grace of friendship, the character of friendship not so much as useful or necessary, but friendship as pure gift. C.S. Lewis captured it well. In a circle of true friends, each man is simply what he is, stands for nothing but himself. No one cares tuppence about anyone else's family, profession, class, income, race or previous history. Of course, you'll get to know about most of these in the end, but casually. They'll come out bit by bit to furnish an illustration or an analogy, to serve as pegs for an anecdote, never for their own sake. That is the kingliness of friendship. We meet like sovereign princes of independent states, abroad, on neutral ground, freed from our contexts. This love, essentially, ignores not only our physical bodies, but that whole embodiment which consists of our family, job, past and connections. At home, besides being Peter or Jane, we also bear a general character, husband or wife, brother or sister, chief, colleague or subordinate. Not among our friends. It is an affair of disentangled or stripped minds. Eros will have naked bodies. Friendship, naked personalities. Hence, if you'll not misunderstand me, the exquisite arbitrariness and irresponsibility of this love. I have no duty to be anyone's friend, and no man in the world has a duty to be mine. No claims, no shadow of necessity. Friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves, 
1960. The thing that strikes me about the friendship that that I've lost with Ben is the beauty of being known through and through uh, with no judgment. It's one of the very few relationships in my life uh, where there's no performance anxiety. You're never trying to be funnier than you are, smarter than you are. It's just because you are completely known. Right. Uh, it, it's it's so comfortable. There's no play acting, and uh, you know each other better than you know yourself. No, I think that's really true. Those those friendships can't can't be replaced in that regard. One of the things I've I've loved about being single is is having more of a capacity for friendship than I otherwise would have had. And so, what I may not experience the same depth of intimacy that many of my married friends do, but I, I get a breadth of intimacy that they might not have. Um, I mean, two of my best friends are, are here where I, I'm staying at the moment in, in Nashville, and they're both they're both pastors. Uh, one of them is in his, he's 71. The other one is 37, 38. I'm 45. Um, and yet, the three of us are very tight. We we meet together every Monday afternoon for a couple of hours, really just to kind of, we call it walking in the light after 1 John 1 verse 7, but it really is just trying to be transparent with each other. Um, we're, we're wanting to to let what, let each other in on what's actually going on in our lives. So we, we confess sins to each other. We share struggles and hopes and fears and I always know what I ought to share with them because it's the very thing I don't feel like sharing with them, and that's that's how I kind of gauge what do I need to what do I need to tell Ray and TJ about. Well, it's the thing I feel like I don't want to. <laughs> um, so it's it's a gift having friends that you can be that honest with, and I've had some deep friendships over the years that I'm I'm very grateful for. But it's lovely having two guys where the three of us are very committed to honesty um, and where therefore we, you know, I feel completely known by these guys. There's nothing I don't feel like I can share with them. Um, there's a safety and a security in that. It's, it's always a little bit nerve wracking if you feel like there's something particularly vulnerable you need to share. But then when all of you are doing that, when that's a mutual thing, it, it actually really deepens your sense of, of friendship. It's a lovely expression, isn't it, um, to be known by someone. Um, we often think, you know, in terms of, oh, I really know that person well. But but there is a – you can be so relaxed when you're known through and through. Um, I often find that, that, that. I have only a few people where I feel they know me so well, I am under no performance pressure to be yeah. – appear more godly than I am, appear more smart than I am. Um, I'm just I'm just the jerk that I am, and it's awesome. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's liberating, isn't it? Because mm. there there is an exhaustion that comes with performance and with pretense. And you can't you can't avoid an element of performance in this world because of the way it is. But you need somewhere where you can just exhale and not constantly be kind of monitoring how you're coming across or what they might think of you or being your own PR agent. And 
it's it's what we were made for in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were naked and without shame. There's a sense there of not not feeling vulnerable being open to others. Whereas in, in the world we live in, we are vulnerable. Mm. And so it's... The opposite of a Facebook friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we have to constantly cover and spin and, you know, filter. And it's it's a a truly blessed relief when you find people that actually you can just, they, they, they know the best and the worst about you. And therefore you're not going to surprise them on your best days or your worst days. Um, and they still stick around, which is amazing. Well, you've proved my director uh, correct. That wasn't a lame conversation at all. <laughs> Sam, thanks so much, mate. My pleasure. Thank you, friend. <laughs> Get stuffed. Check out the show notes for this episode and the others over at Undeceptions.com, which is fast becoming a treasure trove of free print, audio and video material designed to undeceive and let the truth out. And while you're there, write or record a question and I'll try and answer it later in the season. And if you're in the mood to support Undeceptions, there are three things you can do. Click the donate button and help us break even one day, buy a t-shirt and spread the word, or go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Apparently, reviews do magical things to our ratings. Next episode, fasten your seatbelts, trays in the upright position, we're heading into outer space. We're talking to astrophysicists and astronauts, one of each anyway, and we're pondering what the discovery of life on other planets might mean for faith, the universe, and everything. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne, and directed by Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwee. And a shout out to all of our guest voiceover artists for this episode. Maya Hadley, Pete Stedman, James Lewis, Yannick Laurie, Laura Doust, and also my fellow podcasters, Michael Jensen and Megan Powell-Detois from With All Due Respect. It's so nice to hear all your voices on the show. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com, letting the truth out. An Underceptions podcast. <laughs>